0: In some parts of the world, it's not unheard of for learning in kindergarten through high school to take place outdoors. Informal learning on field trips or structured learning, where instead of listening to lessons while sitting in a room with a ceiling, children sit under an open sky. Not unheard of, but it's also not common. In densely populated cities, outdoor learning is not the norm. In the United States, even stepping outside for recess twice a day isn't common. Nature education for children, well, there's an enormous topic and one we haven't tackled on the shape of the world yet. Nor are we gonna be doing any tackling in today's episode either, not exactly. But we are at least going to do some sidling up to the subject by talking with one remarkable educator who's a dedicated practitioner of outdoor education, right in the city. I'm Jill Riddell, and this is The Shape of the World.
1: I'm Sylvie Anglin, and I'm the lower school principal at the University of Chicago Laboratory Schools. As
0: principal, Sylvie Anglin recently helped lead a team that built a remarkable outdoor classroom at that school that's right in the city. And before that, when she was a teacher, she would take her students outdoors on a regular basis to a wild place in a nearby park. What I wanted to know was, why? What inspired Sylvie to make that effort?
1: How did she get that way? First of all, I'll go back to my first teacher, um, my dad, who had the greenest thumb of any human I'd ever met. And from the earliest time that I remember just being outside with him, he spent a lot of time outside, I was always so tuned in to what he was doing when we were walking around because he knew the names of everything. You know, he would look over and see a plant and be, you know, be able to tell me what it was. And because he was always noticing out loud when we were walking around or wandering around, he was always aware of what was happening uh, around us. He kind of tuned me into that way of looking and seeing. Where was that? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Mississippi and lived in a fairly small but college
0: town. So you had your dad. Did you also have any school experiences that fostered
1: that interest? Maybe a teacher that thought nature was valuable? In sixth grade, we had this project. We, you know, this was a public school in Mississippi, and we had to create a collection of wild flowers and plants that were native to Mississippi. It was a year-long project, so my dad and I would go out and... Collect things off the side of the road. We drive out to the forest and pick things. And then we would spend a lot of time very carefully pressing them in our 1974 Britannica uh, encyclopedias. Uh, I'm sure that there's still a few plants that are all squished and dried out in those books. And then we would try to work together to identify what they were. What grade do you think you were in? It was either fifth or sixth grade.
0: Were you unusual in your class for taking that project so seriously
1: and enjoying it so much? Yeah, I think because there weren't a lot of my friends who had a parent who was like that green mentor or who took such an interest in being outside and exploring and seeing how many different varieties of buttercups we could find. Their parents just didn't do that with them.
0: Green mentor, I like that term. Both of my two daughters went to Sylvie's school. One was Sylvie's student twice, once as a first grader and later as a fourth grader. My other daughter was in preschool with Sylvie's older daughter. We shortened the very long name of the University of Chicago Laboratory Schools to just lab school. So from now on, that's what we'll be calling it. It is on a college campus, so it has some more green around it than it might be if it were in a different location. However, it is on the south side of the third largest city in America. What has it been like trying to incorporate nature into the fabric of a very urban school?
1: It was embedded in, in a school because when the school was founded in 1896, even though it was close to the city, we were on the south side in an area that was considered less urban and more rural. There were goats and animals around. Was that really typical for city
0: kids to have that experience, or was that a very unusual choice of pedagogy and curriculum?
1: It's all a part of John Dewey's philosophy of what school should be for students. And in 1896, when he founded the lab schools, he really believed that school should be an extension of what was happening in the real world and life around us and that children coming to school shouldn't feel like it was something that was alienated from their real lives. It also connects in with with his philosophy that education should be hands-on learning, connecting all of those things together in experiences, deeply rooted in real-world situations. It should be all woven together.
0: Do you have any examples of what it's been like for you taking classrooms of children out into nature?
1: the project with the Wooded Island, which I did for a number of years. We would go over to the Wooded Island and the area around it, Bobolink Meadow, and we would just notice things. We would do observational drawings. We would take pictures of creatures. The thing that I really loved about it was that we went back again and again. It wasn't just a one-time visit to nature. It was multiple visits where you're really noticing the changes in what's happening in a year. You're developing a relationship with the space. That was what was really important to me. What did the kids see there? Your basic squirrels and bunnies and things. Beavers regularly visited there. And actually uh, one year we watched a beaver dam all year and all kinds of things. It was actually really amazing. I had this idea that kids needed to have some sort of a field guide. I didn't want to just give them a field guide. I wanted them to create it with me. I worked with the field museum and would get specimens of creatures that were native to this area and bring them in so that the children could do really close observational science drawings of those animals. Then once they had seen them up close and had done really thoughtful drawings of them, when they saw things like that out at the island, they were so excited. They recognized these things. They had names for them and they, they knew what they were all about.
0: Is there any way to know if there's a difference between the way children perceived nature in John Dewey's early years at the lab schools and the way children react to nature now?
1: With really young children, I think it's all the same. They have this innate curiosity, and they're hardwired to connect with the world around them. I don't see a change with the younger children. I do notice changes with the older children, and partly because We're spending so much time connected to technology and less and less time connected to the actual living world around us. How does it manifest itself? It's a certain kind of lack of awareness of mindfulness that's missing. Nature is a built-in mindfulness moment. And when you're out in the natural world, it requires you to be mindful in a way that not being in the natural world doesn't. There have been some small research studies that
0: suggest kids who have attention deficit issues benefit from taking outdoor walks, that they're better able to focus. But just on a personal level, can you observe changes in students? Do you think they're noticeably different from kids who
1: don't have much access to the outdoors? I've always noticed that when I've taken kids out into nature for any amount of time, whether it's the morning recess that I run to allow kids to run around for 15 or 20 minutes before they start their school day or a whole day at the Wooded Island, there is a significant shift in presence with each other and in the way that they are navigating their spaces. I think if you're outside, you have to you have to be really thoughtful about where you're stepping. You have to be really thoughtful about what's coming at you or what's not coming at you. And your senses are constantly being engaged in, in a lot of different ways, whether it's just the feel of what's around you or the sounds, and there's so much going on. You might hear you know, the water trickling or a bird or any number of things, but all of those things require your attention in a way that you don't have when you're just in a inside space. And I noticed that when the kids would come inside, they would be really zen. They would be way more focused after time outside.
0: Yes, that makes a lot of sense. It's a good
1: argument for recess. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely.
0: You and I have shared a number of adventures together, but one that I really appreciated being included on was your adventure to create an outdoor classroom at lab school. And I was part of that advisory committee what made you think that lab school needed an outdoor classroom, quote unquote, when it had Wooded Island and Botany Pond and other places that children were already going to?
1: It took us about eight years from the time when this a couple of science teachers came running into my office saying, we have this idea. So when we knew that the youngest kids were gonna be moving over closer to Jackson Park, but away from Botany Pond, we were thinking about how we would reconfigure that space. And one of the things that we wanted to do was to connect the youngest children and the older children at the school through a shared experience and a shared beautiful place. Imagine that you and I are standing at the gate together
0: instead of being us with our adult framework, we're 11. Describe for us what's there.
1: So you walk off of a very flat area where the school is, which is all flat. And the thing and mostly that you concrete, notice, I mean, it's all concrete, sure. right? And you walk through the gate, first thing you notice is this giant circle. And what's interesting about the giant circle, it's ringed with these large stones and big wood logs that. For people to sit on. For right? people to sit on. Uh-huh. And right. the, at the very center of that is a fire pit, which is a very bizarre thing to come to a school and. The middle of chicago and and see this campfire <laughs> um and then the other thing that you see are these berms these hills they have these stone ledges which you can actually climb on we wanted children to be able to engage and explore and take a little bit of risk that meant being able to climb in places where you think maybe you shouldn't be climbing and then when you look to the left you notice that there's this little stream The sounds pull you in. And then you get to this beautiful pond that's got a ring of stone around it and children can walk all the way around the pond exploring what there is to explore.
0: You invited me over there one day when it was uh, wintry out and the librarians who do the storytelling were doing a storytelling out there and the fire was going and I think there might have been a marshmallow or two involved in that um, that day, and definitely some great storytelling and participation from the kids. Did you have a classroom teacher who incorporated nature into the classroom when you were young?
1: It wasn't really until I came to lab school that I made the connection between education and nature. And one of the first times that I really had a a self-awareness about it was the first year I was teaching first grade, and I was teaching with a veteran teacher at the time. And she had this project where they would get amaryllis bulbs in the winter. They would force the bulbs. And over the course of the month, the children did these observational drawings. They would measure the growth, but they would draw. They would look really, really closely at what was happening. And I remember Ms. Brindley would really push the children to draw exactly what they saw and to take their time to look at it really carefully. And this is another one of those things where it was a repeated connection and a relationship with nature, so it wasn't just a one-time thing. And it was very intentional and really close-looking. The children would make these drawings every couple of days. Then you could line up the drawings in, in a sequential order And watch this bulb grow into this beautiful flower. That's when I realized what was possible in a school.
0: I think one thing that's really cool about that is also just imagining them for day after day, having it only be a green shoot a green shoot, a green shoot, and then the first day when that first little bit of that crimson color starts to appear, how if you weren't paying attention to it on a daily basis, you'd miss it entirely. If somebody pointed out to you, you'd be like, oh, whatever. But the fact that you're following it makes that sudden appearance of that really bright, beautiful red its own little miracle. And then to see it unfurl after that, after having paid such close attention, that feeling of reward must be astonishing.
1: It was every time they looked, it was a reward. They would get their card out to draw a new picture, and they looked closely, and the second they noticed what was different, they were celebrating it. And there's so many incredible patterns in nature, and when you start to notice patterns in nature, you then can apply that to noticing patterns in math. The natural world provides children with unending questions.
0: I know that the famous chef and food activist Alice Waters came to lab school and that you got to meet her.
1: I got to spend a day with Alice Waters. That had a big impact on me, partly because this is somebody who followed her passions, and I think anyone who follows their passions and lives their passions is just a compelling person. But also, the idea that we have the potential to really impact children in in a positive way by providing them with the connection to their food, showing them where their food comes from, connecting them to the source, having them grow it themselves, learn how to prepare it and having it be beautiful. That tells them that they're valued. And her edible schoolyard project is all about that. It honors that children need to learn experientially, which goes back to John Dewey. And one of the things that I've really enjoyed over the past couple of years, and it's happening in the school garden, is that the fifth graders have been planting lettuce seeds in the early spring. Mm -hmm. Um, So as soon as we can get the, the seeds in the ground, we get them in the ground. They plant them. And then it's usually around the last week of school. We've got a garden full of lettuces, And they harvest the lettuce and create a big salad bar it's embedded in the life of a school day so it's not a separate subject it's interwoven and it's interdisciplinary and when i think about what school should be and how we inspire kids it's not having a whole bunch of subjects that are separate from each other it's looking for how things connect and how those connections can be explored in problem-solving and collaborative work and in being hands-on. Schools
0: have an enormous palette of tasks and these huge goals that they're supposed to accomplish to please the state government, their local governments, governing school boards, sometimes even the federal government, parents, businesses. How would you make the argument that it's worth it for a teacher or a school to
1: throw nature in there too? We are connected to the natural world whether we like it or not, and we are dependent on the natural world. If we want to have a future, we have to take care of the world around us. The way that we get children to care about what they're going to have to care about eventually, because there's going to be problems they're going to have to solve, we have to get them to love that. Developing the relationship between a child and the natural world is the way to build that love and respect for it that they're gonna need when they are having to make decisions about things that are gonna impact the natural world. Sylvie, thank you so much for coming in. Jill, thank you for having me. This has been pretty cool. (laughs)
0: This is Jill Riddell, And I hope this conversation with Sylvie Anglin inspires you to incorporate outdoor time into your own learning. Next week, we'll be talking with the scientist Melina Hale. Melina studies the nerve cells in fish brains, ones that resemble the same kind as what's found in our brains.
1: In some cases, you know, you're seeing nerve cell in the brain that no one's ever identified before. It's a new thing that's never been described
0: before. Sort of like discovery in the deep oceans or in space, but instead, like in these tiny little animals. Until then, enjoy being outside as much as you can. The Shape of the World is about nature and people and the world we share. It's a production of the Office of Modern Composition, a business that creates compositions and fosters composers. If you have a story to tell, the Office of Modern Composition can help. They can go all DIY and teach you how to write and produce the story yourself, or they'll do the whole thing for you. Either way, you can end up with a permanent archival piece that presents your ideas and experiences. The Shape of the World is produced in the vital, vigorous, and beautiful metropolis of Chicago in the Prairie State of Illinois. You can find The Shape of the World on Instagram and on the website, shapeoftheworldshow.com. There you'll find images from Sylvie's work and the outdoor classroom. There's also a drawing of Sylvie by the artist, Rose Curley. The Shape of the World's producer is Ari Mejia. The theme music is composed and performed by Brad Wood. Thank you to today's guest, Sylvie Anglin and the University of Chicago Laboratory Schools.